Welcome to Bladder Buzz, the podcast where doctors, researchers, and consumers discuss bladder health and function for those with neurogenic bladder. On today's episode, we welcome rehabilitation psychologists Angela Kumel and Katie Powell to discuss advocacy in spinal cord injury. And now, Bladder Buzz. Welcome to the Bladder Buzz podcast. My name is Angela Kimmel. I am a rehabilitation psychologist at the Spinal Cord Injury Unit at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA, where I've worked for the past nine years. In addition, I have a spinal cord injury myself and have lived with spinal cord injury for over 24 years. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Powell. And I am an occupational therapist at the Clement J. Zavlocki VA Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am also Angela's sister. So I have also been a member of the spinal cord injury community for many years. And Angela had her spinal cord injury when I was six years old. So it's always been something that I've grown up with my whole life. So we are going to be talking about advocacy today. So what exactly do we mean by advocacy? So advocacy is speaking up in support of a particular topic, cause, or policy. Self-advocacy is speaking up for your own rights. Today's podcast is on disability advocacy, and we will share resources and tips on how you can advocate for your rights as a person with a disability. Now that we've defined advocacy, let's talk about the common barriers, and challenges that people with spinal cord injury face early after their injury in comparison to years onward in the physical environment, workplace, and in accessing healthcare. People with disabilities face many barriers in their communities. When they first return home after a spinal cord injury, they may realize that their own home environment is not as accessible as they anticipated it to be. As they re-enter the community, they may find steps to access a restaurant or a store in an old or historic building. Stores might have narrow aisles or pathways and bathrooms that could be difficult to access from a wheelchair. Attractions may also not be fully accessible due to things like stairs or uneven terrain. Transportation is another very common barrier immediately after spinal cord injury. As people may not have access to an accessible vehicle, or they may not have completed driver's training to relearn how to drive after a spinal cord injury. Some people may be unable to relearn how to drive due to physical or cognitive functioning, or have limited access to driver's training services. Public transportation can also be challenging to navigate. Many rural areas don't have wheelchair-accessible public transportation. And in urban areas, there's a lot of common public transportation challenges, like equipment failures. These are things like an elevator being out on a rail or a subway line, or a wheelchair ramp or lift not working on a bus. Private rideshare companies like Uber or Lyft currently only offer wheelchair-accessible vehicles in 17 cities worldwide. We will be covering more on these challenges in depth in a future podcast specifically on accessible travel. Workplace barriers might include some of the physical barriers previously mentioned, difficulty obtaining reasonable accommodations, or being unable to physically perform a job previously held. Barriers to accessing healthcare include transportation to and from appointments, 
access to spinal cord injury specialists, which are often only in major cities for ongoing care, and unique physical environment issues such as exam tables, chairs, and equipment that are not accessible from wheelchair level. So what existing laws and regulations protect people with spinal cord injuries, and how do we learn about them? The first place to start is the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. This is the most comprehensive disability legislation in the world. It was enacted in 1990 and amended in 2008 as the ADA Amendments Act, or ADAAA. The ADA protects qualified individuals with disabilities. So let's break this down a little bit. First, disability. It's defined as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of an individual, a record of such impairment, or being regarded as having such an impairment. So this includes people with permanent disabilities, episodic disabilities, or even a regarded impairment, like in the case of facial disfigurement, which may not impair a major life activity, but others may think it does. All right. Now, what does major life activities include? In the initial legislation, major life activities included seeing, hearing, walking, caring for oneself, learning, breathing, and working. The 2008 amendments, which became effective January 1st of 2009, broadened this interpretation and added performing manual tasks, eating, sleeping, standing, lifting, bending, speaking, reading, concentrating, thinking, and communicating, as well as the operation of several specified major bodily functions. This was the first time that those with invisible disabilities and those with chronic illnesses could be protected by the ADA. Some other important laws are the Fair Housing Act and the Air Carrier Access Act. The Fair Housing Act protects renters who need disability accommodations from their landlord. The Air Carrier Access Act is important to know if you plan to travel by plane. The best way to learn about these laws is through subject matter experts like us and online resources. ADA.gov is a favorite website of mine. I also like the National ADA Network, which can direct you to your regional ADA Network Center. For us, that's the Great Lakes ADA Center. I recently started taking free ADA trainings and am working towards an ADA coordinator's certificate totally free of charge on their website. Now let's talk about what the ADA covers. The ADA consists of five different titles. Title I is employment, which covers all aspects of work settings, including accommodations employers must provide for employees. It also bars discrimination in the application, hiring, wages, or promotion processes. Title II is public services. This covers activities of state and local government, like voting locations, public education, social services, and transportation. Title III is public accommodations. This includes professionals' offices, new and existing buildings, like hotels, movie theaters, sports facilities, fitness centers, and retail stores. Title IV is telecommunications, which covers TTYs and TDDs. Title V is miscellaneous, which, as you'd expect, is a grab bag category. 
Title V includes laws on service dogs, protections for caregivers, and provisions such as attorney's fees of prevailing parties in ADA lawsuits. It also provides protection for state and local laws that mandate equal or greater protection to individuals with disabilities that are not superseded or limited by the ADA. That's a lot of jargon, but a good example is in Florida, there's a state law that mandates that all wheelchair accessible bathrooms or stalls have a sink in them. So that supersedes the ADA, which doesn't have legislation about that. What other concepts are important to know from the ADA? So I think two really important ones are reasonable accommodations and undue hardship, which are both phrases that come from the ADA. Reasonable accommodations are any modification or adjustment to a job or the work environment that will enable a qualified applicant or employee with a disability to participate in the application process or to perform essential job functions. Reasonable accommodations also include adjustments to assure that a qualified individual with a disability has rights and privileges in employment equal to those employees without disabilities. Reasonable accommodations commonly occur in the workplace. Some examples of reasonable accommodations include altering a work schedule. For example, if someone with a spinal cord injury requested a later start time and worked from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. instead of 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Another example of a reasonable accommodation is modifying equipment like dictation software, such as Dragon Naturally Speaking. Reasonable accommodations may also be needed at school, such as extended time on tests and examinations. Reasonable accommodations may also occur in the community, such as being reseated at a sporting event if a fan doesn't have wheelchair seats. Reasonable accommodations are not absolute in the eye of the law. They are what makes the ADA and the ADAAA unique. It's also important to understand undue hardship, which is defined as an action requiring significant difficulty or expense. This means the nature and cost of the accommodation is considered in relation to the size, resources, nature, and structure of the employer's operation. Undue hardship is determined on a case-by-case basis. In general, a larger organization with greater resources would be expected to make accommodations requiring greater effort or expense than be required of a smaller employer with fewer resources. For example, I once stayed at a large hotel chain that offered a free airport shuttle that was not accessible for a wheelchair user. As a reasonable accommodation, the hotel paid for me to take a wheelchair-accessible Uber to the airport. I knew when I asked for this reasonable accommodation, a large hotel chain would not be able to claim undue hardship for a $17 Uber ride. That's a great example of reasonable accommodation in the community. So how would someone know if they are experiencing discrimination? Good question. So disability discrimination is when you are treated less favorably than someone without a disability would be treated. At times, it might be obvious, such as being told you can't do something because of your disability. But at other times, it may not be as obvious, such as being passed over for a job or a promotion. My biggest advice in trying to determine if you are experiencing discrimination is to pay attention to how you feel 
as when discrimination occurs, you're likely going to feel frustrated or bad about having a disability. I also recommend that you consult with both peers with disabilities, rehab and legal professionals about what you're experiencing and how you can advocate for yourself. So how does someone with a disability find a voice to advocate for themselves? So first of all, Check your resources, like the ones we've shared, to review your rights as an individual with a disability. Second, weigh the pros and cons of speaking up and advocating for yourself. Third, consult with peers with disabilities, rehab and legal professionals. Finally, develop an advocacy plan. An advocacy plan could be oral or written communication. Start off by stating what the problem is and how your rights are being violated as an individual with a disability under the ADA or the ADAAA. Appreciate any concerns about the situation, including safety, cost, architectural, or physical barriers. Then propose or request official disability reasonable accommodations. For example, with my earlier advocacy example about the hotel shuttle that wasn't wheelchair accessible, I started off by saying to the hotel clerk that the hotel was offering a service to able-bodied guests, but not to me as a wheelchair user, which meant they were treating me differently on the basis of disability. I told them that I appreciated that the hotel shuttle didn't have a wheelchair lift because it was costly. I proposed as a reasonable accommodation that they pay for my wheelchair-accessible Uber ride to the airport. I added that other hotels had done this for me in the past. So what are some of the challenges of learning or teaching advocacy? Well, we believe that the best time to start learning these principles is immediately after a spinal cord injury during rehabilitation. However, time and rehab is a major barrier. In addition, some teams may play hot potato with the issue, asking whose job is it to educate people on advocacy? Well, we'd argue that this is an interdisciplinary goal and all members of the rehab team can integrate advocacy principles into their plan of care. Another challenge of teaching advocacy is disability adjustment and disability identity. Those who are better adjusted are more likely to be in a position to advocate. If an individual doesn't embrace their disability identity, they are not likely to see a need for disability advocacy. Both of these play a role in a patient's readiness to embrace the disability advocate role. So why is it important to advocate? Well, first of all, no one with an acquired disability ever expected to be in a disability advocacy role. But disability advocacy is crucial to improving the quality of life for all people with disabilities. Disability advocacy can also feel empowering and help with coping. Disability rights are hard-won civil rights battle by people with disabilities. They need to learn their rights and to use their own voices. And people without disabilities can be allies in advocacy. Strength in numbers, right? Great point, Katie. Can you share what local and national organizations can help people with spinal cord injuries and their families to advocate for themselves? Absolutely. There are great disability resource and advocacy groups in every community. And you can start by Googling your area and disability advocacy. 
Nationally, the United Spinal Association and the Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation are great places to start. If you're a veteran, we highly recommend becoming involved with the Paralyzed Veterans of America. These organizations have educational material and are active in advocacy efforts. Well, thanks so much for listening today. We hope we've inspired you to be an advocate for people with disabilities in your community. Bladder Buzz is presented by the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center on Neurogenic Lower Urinary Tract Dysfunction. The information presented in this podcast does not express the views of the individual's employer or affiliated institutions. The content is for informational and reference purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, or as the sole source of guidance for decision-making. We advise you to always consult with a physician before making any healthcare decisions or for guidance about a specific medical condition. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.